Hello, guys, gals, and non-binary pals, and welcome back to another episode of Science in Podcast, presented by Science in Pictures magazine. As always, there are two people here in this virtual space. I'm one of them, Madison Dix. And I'm the other one, Jared Edelman. Yes, that is us, your co-hosts. So happy to be here to take the headache out of peer-reviewed scientific literature. If you have listened uh, for a long time, although we haven't even been making podcasts for a long time, but if you are (laughs) a returning listener, you might already know that Jared and I have decided that this month is Shark Month. Yes, exactly. Uh, Because sharks do a whole lot of different things, which kind of mimics uh, the fact there are a whole lot lot of different people. I had a good idea of what I wanted to say with this, but people are different and sharks are different too. And uh, because it's Pride Month, it also makes sense to do Shark Month. Question Heck mark. Yeah. Sharks <laughs> and people do have some things in common. Um, <laughs> we're both vertebrates. Yes. We're both diverse. Yes. And we're both misunderstood and um, need to be treated more kindly in general. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, there isn't a species of human that is a... 40 to 50 foot long filter feeder and then another one where their babies eat each other in the womb, like literally, but you know, we're still pretty different. We don't have everything in common, but those <laughs> are the things we have in common. <laughs> so happy pride, happy shark month. Um, this week I, Madison, am bringing the article in case you didn't, couldn't tell me and Jared's voices apart. <laughs> Unlikely. They're completely similar. Um, So I'm bringing the article this week, and my article is about how sharks affect the ecosystems that they inhabit. Oh, a little top-down, bottom-up type thing. Yes. But before we get into all that, just a little bit of business. Real quick, I wanted to thank everybody who is listening right now, um, because we are just starting out as a podcast. So every single download, every subscription really, really counts. So thank you. If you like this podcast, please try to share it with a friend and rate, review, and subscribe. You can also engage with us online. Um, We have an Instagram, science underscore in underscore podcast. Uh, We have a Facebook. Right now, it's not working because um, my Facebook got hacked. But Big time. (laughs) Yeah. But I don't mean to laugh, but... We we had a Facebook. (laughs) I think it's still gonna, like do like the auto posts automatically, which some people see because like we, we get some interactions. So yeah. Yeah. If you interact with us on Facebook, um, let us know. And the way that you <laughs> let us know things, you can DM us on Instagram or you can email us. Our email is podcast at scienceandpictures.com. Make sure you also swing over to ye old scienceandpictures.com and check out our host who's also doing Shark Month. Pretty cool. Hell yeah. All right. Business is over. Time for fun. It's fun fact corner. Ooh, okay. Uh, yeah. So I uh, recently uh, had the surprising pleasure of playing Borderlands Three. Uh, if you're a video game person, you might have uh, had the same feeling because it looked awful. Um, but it was free uh, on Play. This is all going to sound like a bunch of boring stuff, but it was it was free because I do a subscription service anyway. Um, there's actually a built-in crowd fun. Well, crowdsourced is the word. Um, can, citizen science type project um uh studying the human gut microbiome so basically they have all they made these like little mini games out of so many just strands of dna of of different microbes and they're basically trying to figure out 
where the holes are in their coding of the actual sequencing. They're trying to figure out where they sequence things wrong. They're trying to get help sequencing different microbes because there's just so much DNA to sort through. Um, I couldn't uh, actually look into it because my internet started failing at the exact moment I wanted to, but it seems like a really cool concept that I hope is going to be used for a lot of games moving forward. That's really interesting, but I'm... I sort of missed how how the video game connects to the gut biome. It doesn't at all. Um, and I was taken for a loop because it was like it was like a five second video after you started. You in the game, you walk over to this little arcade machine and it explains the whole thing for you. And I was looking at the screen like this has nothing to do with aliens and bandits and shooting. Um, but it was still really cool. <laughs> like absolutely nothing to do with the game, but I thought that was kind of fun. Okay. I'm still confused, but I accept that this is cool. <laughs> yeah, they had a very shaky connection to, to one of the characters with their uh, little projects. But um, yeah, it was interesting. Okay. All right, cool. I mean, like, I think there is quite a lot of overlap between like nerds who like video games and nerds who like science. So why not dive into that little overlap? Yeah, especially if you can trick them into helping you with science by turning it into fun little mini games. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. Oh, I get it. So the mini game helps them identify the DNA. Yeah, basically they've translated the DNA code into like video game language or something that would be interesting for someone to use a, a controller to solve or whatever console or controller they're, they're, they're doing. I Again, I can't explain oh, the whole okay. thing because I didn't get to do it, but... Now I kind of get it because I was confused because I was like, how is somebody submitting a sample of their gut bacteria through a video oh, game? Uh, <laughs> so they have already done that. They already did that part. Okay, now it yes. makes more sense. Yes. Woohoo! All right, we figured it out. Um, <laughs> all right, for my fun fact... Wait, one video, more thing moving oh, forward. Oh. I actually did have that ex exact same thought halfway through, through the video, but they did explain that in the video, which is why I can explain that to you. I was like, I don't oh, want right. to send you my poop over the mail, but yeah. There is a service where you can send your poop over the mail. Oh, yeah. I uh, signed up to volunteer for that because uh, poop donors get paid like 250 bucks a month, but they uh, denied me for some reason. Mother Wow. Your poop yeah. denied? <laughs> My poop got denied. Well, I didn't send them the poop in the first place. You you, you do like a questionnaire of like your ancestry and uh, medications you take and stuff. And I guess some combination of that, that uh, got me denied. They didn't want your poop. No one wants my poop. Not oh. even my toilet. Oh, and for very confused um, listeners right now, I just want to let you know, uh, it's for science. The, 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 the poop oh, yeah. service. It's not... It's for science. <laughs> um, uh, just to draw a connection to uh, an actual scientific finding that's been really revolutionized, uh, Clostridium difficile, uh, which causes C. diff infections, um, can actually be treated by giving someone a pill uh, full of a healthy person's feces. I've heard that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my fun fact this week comes from a book that I'm reading that I love. It's called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. I've heard of that one. It's really cool. Um, the author is uh, an indigenous woman and she's also a researcher and a biologist. And That's awesome. Yeah. So the book really weaves together, you know, her experience. <laughs> weaves. Yeah, really though. <laughs> her experiences and her traditional knowledge with her, you know, research and science knowledge. And it's really cool. It's a really, really inspiring uh, read and it's helped me understand like how humans and the environment can work together in a way that's not harmful to either. Um, and something that I learned from this book is that the continent that you and I are on um, was known for many thousands of years as Turtle Island. Really? Yeah. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that at all. That's is it because of all the turtles? 
Not at all. So <laughs> that's what I'm going to call it from now on because, you know, like borders are stupid. Yeah. It's kind of like how um, a lot of Native Africans know Africa by a completely different word that's not coming to me in the moment. But yeah. Yeah. Um, so obviously Turtle Island is the English translation of <laughs> the various uh, different languages in which um, this continent was named that. But it comes from a story um, about the origins of this land, which... Oh, probably has something to do with the world turtle, right? Yes, the world Always. turtle. Always. Every origin story involves a big turtle. Yeah. Um, so it's similar to, like, briefly describe the story, like, super briefly. Read the book, because they'll, like, she does a much better job than I'm about to. Um, but basically, their origin story is that before there were people on the world, it was mostly water. And then a woman fell from the sky world and a flock of geese caught her and they were trying to help her. Um, and all of the animals were sort of brainstorming to try to figure out how to help her. And then a great turtle surfaced from the water and offered his back for her to rest on. And then all of the animals helped her to get mud. And then she had these seeds from the sky world and she danced and spread out the seeds and like, Basically, the world was built on this turtle's back from the animals and the humans helping each other. Interesting. Such a better story than God made man in his image and then took one of his ribs to make a woman to serve him. And then they got kicked out of the garden for just eating the fruit. <laughs> <laughs> now, I hate once... that story. I hate that story. <laughs> I hate that story. I would prefer in my mind to call it Turtle Peninsula, just because like North yeah. and South America are connected. So, you know, it's like one half of an island. Well, I mean... Oh, wait. Is the whole thing called Turtle Island? Like North and South America? They didn't have maps, hun. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's true. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, Turtle Island. That's, yeah. Um, that's an origin story from that's shared by many different peoples in the Great Lakes region. I'm not sure if it's shared by the original peoples of the uh, Eastern coast where we live now, but still cool. Interesting. Yeah. I guess that would depend on, no, I'm not going to jump into that rabbit hole. Okay. Let's move on to your favorite. So much rabbit hole that we could jump down, but yeah, no, I really like that story. Yeah. So that's my fun fact. All right. So that was our fun fact corner and you might be confused now, like where's the sharks? Um, the fun fact corner never has anything to do with our main theme. Now is where well, it we... does sometimes. Okay, fine. Contradict me. <laughs> <laughs> I remember one or two times. But Every once in a while it does, but yeah. <laughs> it doesn't have to is the thing. Good. Um, yes. But the next part of the episode does. So next is our jargon corner where we take some time to explain some science concepts that are going to be uh, touched on in the article to make sure everyone's on the same page. So, okay. Our first piece of jargon, the energy cycle. The energy cycle? Yes. Uh, the energy cycle is sort of like the transfer of energy as it moves from organism to organism. It's sort of like that, like, it's estimated to be like 10% and then the rest is lost as heat, but 10% rest is lost as heat, 10% rest is lost as heat, and then it just kind of cycles. All right, yeah, that's one way of explaining it. Um, that was a horrible explanation on my part, but that was just what well, I was thinking in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Everything you said is true, but to break it down a little bit for somebody who has never heard of the energy cycle. And can't see inside my forehead. <laughs> basically, um, all of our energy on this planet comes either from the sun or like a little bit from hydrothermal vents. But 
primary producers are organisms that can harness those energy sources and convert them into energy that organisms can consume. So a great example of that is plants using photosynthesis to turn sunlight into growth, reproduction, and glucose, which is sugar, which we can eat. Yeah. Another word for that would be autotroph, which is a make-selfing food and keep going. Just keep going. And just make it going. Um, <laughs> yeah. So those would be primary producers. Yes. Plants, algae, bacteria, plankton. Um, next up are the primary consumers, who are the ones who eat the primary producers. You're supposed to let uh, me guess. Oh, no. wait, is this the same jargon? Yes. Okay, keep going. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> no, don't. I like your company. Okay. Um, all right. So we have our primary producers, plant-like creatures, and then we have the primary consumers, the ones that eat those plant-like creatures, the primary producers. So they harness that energy for their own growth and reproduction. And then those levels just keep going up. So then there's predators that eat those primary consumers. They harness their energy for growth and reproduction. And it each level, some of the energy is expelled as waste and heat. Um, and the waste, as well as the carcasses of organisms that are not consumed by predators or scavengers, is then consumed by decomposers and transformers. Like, Oh, yeah. Uh, quick plug for videos of whale falls right now. Watch a video of a whale fall. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So a lot of decomposers and transformers are bacteria and fungi, or fungi, depending on your preference. And (laughs) those creatures break down those materials, the waste and the carcasses, back down into nutrients that the primary producers can use. So in that way, the energy keeps going on the planet, comes in from the sun, and then just keeps cycling around the planet. Um, Yeah, so that's the energy cycle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Moving forward. Trophic level, Jared. What is a trophic level? A trophic level is uh, basically, well, a lot of schools teach it as a food chain, which in my mind is way too oversimplified because there isn't just, yeah, there isn't just a chain of one thing that just eats one thing that just eats one thing. Maybe I'm like a desert, but that's in my mind, the only place you're going to find something like that. But I didn't actually explain. Trophic levels are basically those levels of uh, energy consumption that Madison was talking about. Uh, Primary producers are a trophic level. Then you have your first and second and tertiary consumers. And then you have the apex predators all the way at the top. Exactly. So yes, all of those levels that I described in the energy cycle, those are trophic levels. So it's the position or the niche or the role that an organism occupies in a food web. Not a food chain, food web. Yes. Everything is connected. Mm-hmm. All right, moving forward. Now that we know what a trophic level is, what's a trophic cascade? A trophic cascade is when something happens at one of the trophic levels that causes a sort of snowball effect and affects all of the other ones. Exactly. So um, basically, it's the consequences in an ecosystem when one level uh, of the food web is suppressed, removed, or disturbed. So the most common example of that would be a top-down cascade. You know what that one is? Yeah, that's when uh, the top predators are wiped out and their prey uh, explode out of control. Exactly. Top predators removed, population of the primary consumers grows and then overexploits the primary producers. Ecosystem is then in danger of collapse. Yes. Another example would be a bottom-up cascade, um, which would mean there's a change in the abiotic or environmental conditions 
that causes a change in primary production. So like if there's a disruption in access to light or the temperature changes, hey, climate change, um, or anything that causes the nutrients available to shift, then populations of those primary producers decrease and then all populations decrease throughout the food web. Again, we have the possibility of ecosystem collapse. Yes, indeed. Sad days. And then there's another one called a subsidy cascade, which has to do with invasive species, but we're just not going to go into that right now. That, I've never heard that word, but I think I can guess. Anyway, okay. Yeah, it's just when humans go in and mess things up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we, sub we subsidize the destruction with our own idiocy. That's correct. That's basically, yep. That's a good enough definition for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that was our jargon corner. Now, yeah, short and sweet. Um, this is just hardcore biology stuff, ecology stuff. Um, the title of this article that we're talking about today is called Cascading Predator Effects in a Fijian Coral Reef Ecosystem. Sounds beautiful. Yes. It was published in the journal Nature Scientific Reports on November 16th, 2017. So I think I pull from that one like every third article I do. Right? Nature is yeah. great. Um, <laughs> nature is great. Nature is great. Um, so the authors of this study are Douglas B. Rasher of the Bigelow Laboratory for Ocean Sciences in Maine, United States, Turtle nice. Island, um, Andrew S. Huey at the ARC Center of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies at James Cook University in Queensland, Australia. Love it. And Mark E. Hay of the Aquatic Chemical Ecology Center at the Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta, Georgia, Turtle Island. Sound, sounds like a headache. Glad he's doing it, not me. Right? All right. So those are our three researchers. This study concerns reef ecology and the interactions between sharks, fishes, and seaweeds along the coast of Fiji. Interesting. Okay. Yes. So Fiji, if you don't know, is a group of about 300 islands. It's about- Wait, whoa, whoa. What? You didn't know that? N no. Yeah. <laughs> Fiji is- Interesting. Not just one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Every single episode, I show some, a little bit more of my ignorance. Well, I mean, that's what science is all about. You know, the, the greatest enemy of knowledge is not ignorance, but the illusion of knowledge, Jared. Fair enough. I know nothing. Therefore, I am nothing. Let's keep going. <laughs> well, well, let's unpack that later. Now, <laughs> now I'm worried about you. <laughs> Harmless joke. Let's keep going. <laughs> All right. Um, so Fiji is about 300 islands, but it is it is its own nation of those islands. Um, and those islands are in the Southern Pacific Ocean, and they're it's pretty remote. It's about 2,000 miles east of Australia. Wow. Mm-hmm. Is, is this near Point Nemo or whatever that is? Um, I don't know. I've never found Nemo. So, so Point Nemo is like the most remote you can be in the ocean, like far, farest away from any point of land. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Finding Nemo has a whole new meaning now. Uh-huh. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> wow. I just learned something new. Yay. It might, it might not actually be called that, but it definitely has Nemo in it. All right. Island Nemo. It might be on an island. Anyway, keep going. All right, cool. Well... Maybe it's near there. I'm not sure. But it is a remote location. Um, and it's a very interesting place. I did, like, before we actually go into, like, the meat and potatoes of this article, 
Uh, I did some research on Fiji that I'd like to share. Okay. Because <laughs> it's a really interesting place. And like when I, you know, was looking at this article, I realized I know pretty much nothing about Fiji. Um, I know that there is a brand of water that probably doesn't actually come from there. Absolutely not. And what? Ugh. Water should be free. And Fiji sells their water bottles for like $6 a pop. And it's just so messed up. But that's not the Fiji we're talking about. I feel like there's a reason you only see them in places like Starbucks, but keep going. Oh, it's so elitist. Okay. So not that Fiji. (laughs) (laughs) So the original people of the islands that we now call Fiji um, are called the Idake. And as of 2005, the Idake constituted slightly more than half of the total Fijian population. Um, So it's mostly indigenous people on those islands. Um, And actually 21%, so like one fifth of all natural places on earth remain ecologically intact because of the conservation practices of indigenous peoples and local communities, which is 30% more than is conserved by all of the conservation organizations in the world. Capitalism ruins everything. Yes, it does. And so Fiji is no exception to that. Um, So the the Aitake in Fiji are protecting um, the third largest number of threatened endemic species in the world. Holy hell. As well as the largest remaining intact unprotected forests in the entire Polynesia Micronesia Biodiversity Hotspot, which contains almost 5,000 islands. Oh my god. Mm -hmm. That's... (laughs) Yeah, that's impressive. Yep. Much of the biodiversity uh, in Fiji is unique to Fiji. Many species are not found anywhere else in the world. Um, Half of uh, the Fiji's plants and birds and over 90% of the insects and marine insects are all endemic. They're not found anywhere else. Wow. Yes. What do you mean by marine insects? I'm not sure. (laughs) I... I wasn't sure if I wanted to ask because I never heard of that as a concept. But... <laughs> Me either, but I was like, I, I think they're only found there, so I guess I, that's why I don't know about it. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. That, that was my logic there. I just didn't question it. I understand. Um, yeah, a lot of really special wildlife there, um, including some incredibly beautiful, incredibly diverse, and thriving coral reefs, which we love. Noise. Yes, many of the islands of Fiji are surrounded by these shallow intertidal reefs. So reefs that are subject to high tide and low tide, you know, changing what's going on there. Um, Those types of reefs are really common in the Pacific. Um, And the original people of Fiji have been protecting those reefs for over 5,000 years. That's like as long as those reefs have existed. (laughs) I mean, maybe, yeah. Well, so I say that because I'm reminded of uh, there was a big, big international study that looked at like the coral fossil record over the last 30 years. And it seems to have a mass die off about every 5000 years for whatever reason. Wow. Interesting. Well, I know the reason this time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, yes, the corals there have been thriving. The people have been fishing very sustainably and, you know, interacting with that environment in a really peaceful way for about 5000 years until the 19th century, um, when white people messed everything up. Uh, Of course. Yeah, so in the 19th century, um, colonialism um, basically completely disrupted their people, their land, and their water. And then in the last 50 years, capitalist nations, chiefly ours, um, have created this new problem of climate change by burning fossil fuels for energy. And climate change is really bad for corals. So... I was going to boo, 
right there, but I don't yeah. think that would be appropriate. <laughs> I mean, big boo to climate change. Big boo to capitalism. Big boo to colonialism. White people, shape up. You yeah. caused the problem. You gotta Jeffrey fix- Bezos. Yeah, seriously. Jeffrey Bezos. Um, Sorry, Bo Burnham. All right. Um, <laughs> so, in the year 2000, 21 years ago. Um, it sounds like you're about to start a rap song there. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. I'm not that cool. (laughs) (laughs) So in 2000, there was a major, actually, um, yeah, a major bleaching event. And then there were three others since then. And because of those bleaching events, which are caused by climate change, um, almost 60% of the coral has been killed in the shallow reefs along the coral coast of Fiji. That's not Um, good. Not good. However, 60%? Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, but the community has been working throughout that time and continues to work to protect those reefs and to restore them. They're growing heat-resistant coral species and planting them. That's awesome. Really awesome. They've also created several marine protected areas. Um, They're creating, you know, no-take zones and other fishing protections and fishing regulations to try to improve the resilience of those ecosystems so that they can survive this century. So they have regained back a lot of the biodiversity that was lost through their work and their sacrifice. Um, But what we need to do to help them with that is global climate action. Um, So, you know, we've talked a lot about global climate action on this podcast before, how we need to move away from fossil fuels, how 100 corporations are responsible for 71% of emissions causing climate change in the whole world, 100 corporations, and most of those are located in the U.S. Um, and Not so it's really the U.S. military. Yes, the U.S. military. So it's really time to start putting pressure on our leaders and our corporations and, you know, fixing this thing at the root of it um, so that these people who have been, you know, doing it right for thousands of years stop facing the brunt of our mistakes. Um, And by our, I mean, like, you know, as a country, not individualism. Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But this study, (laughs) this study, of course, was not done by the IDK people. Um, It was done by researchers from the U.S. and Australia. Um, But their research, which is super cool, I'm excited to talk about, it wouldn't be possible at all if the IDK people weren't still fighting to protect their home and keep those ecosystems healthy. So I really just wanted to acknowledge their efforts before we proceeded. Love that. Yes. All right. So let's talk about some reef ecology. Um, Maybe I should have put ecology in the jargon corner. It's the study of how... um, Things go together. Yeah, it's of how all of the plants and animals and things in a place all work together and work. Yeah, it's like the the first half of How the World Works by Bo Burnham. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) Just just the first half. (laughs) The first half. Um, The second half we just covered. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So researchers were looking at the ecology of these shallow intertidal reefs um, in the Votua Marine Reserve in Fiji. Mm -hmm. And in these areas, at high tide, the water is deep. It covers the tops of the reefs and predators are able to access those areas. Um, At low tide, it becomes shallow. It's too shallow for large predators to get in. And these lagoons between the reef tops become um, sanctuaries because they're cut off from the rest of the ocean. No large animals can enter. So that's a sheltered place for primary consumers. Are there a lot of walking sharks in this area? Um, Not that I know of. This this study does not focus on walking sharks, but... And, okay. But I mean, that it's the same type of ecosystem where walking sharks live. Like the Great Barrier Reef is a largely intertidal reef. Right, right. 
Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But this study is not about walking sharks. Yeah. It's about reef sharks and nurse sharks. Mm. Um, so researchers went into these areas because they wanted to figure out exactly how the presence of sharks affects that ecosystem. Um, recently, there's been a lot of research showing that sharks and other large reef predators um, don't put enough Basically, they don't eat enough animals to be able to cause a trophic cascade, which is interesting. Um, and the the, the uh, science behind that is that these predators hunt opportunistically. Um, they have a wide range of diets because they're generalists and they traverse multiple reef habitats. So the effects of their predation are then sort of diffused across the food web. However, contradictory to that, there's a lot of other research that shows that in reefs where there are more sharks, there's more biodiversity, more different types of animals and a healthier ecosystem overall. So that suggests that removal of sharks from a reef ecosystem does cause a trophic cascade. So how could both of those things be true? I guess it would depend on the species you remove. Perhaps, perhaps. So these researchers actually think that maybe trophic cascades aren't just caused by predation, but that they could be caused by fear. Huh? All right. Like, so it's a really, really cool <laughs> new field of ecology. It's called the ecology of fear. And um, this refers to the total impact that predators have on prey populations and communities, um, not just including their predation. So fear is defined. Oh, as, yeah. I the, get it. So. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of like how uh, white sharks are like deathly afraid of orca whales. And so like, I guess orca whales don't eat sharks enough to really have like an outsized influence on them, but just the smell of them scares them away. So is that the same thing? Yes, exactly. Okay. Yes. And I almost did an article about that, except I realized I already talked about it too much. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So fear would be the behavioral, physiological, and neurobiological costs of avoiding predation. Basically- you can't keep your head up looking for predators while also keeping your head down to eat at the same time. Hmm. Yeah. So just the fear of predators can influence the behavior of these of these uh, primary consumers. And it can also influence um, their ability to reproduce because if they're eating less, that's less energy stores, which means they can reproduce less. So just the fear of a predator can have the same effects on the population as predation. In fact, it could even have broader effects. This is super interesting. Isn't it fascinating? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the traditional view in ecology would be that predators control prey populations by directly killing and eating them. But in the ecology of fear, it posits that fear reduce prey fertility and energy stores and survival, and the total reduction in prey numbers resulting from the exposure to predators may thus far exceed that due to direct killing alone. And if this is the case, then failing to consider fear as a factor risks profoundly underestimating the ecological role that predators play. Wow. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> these researchers think that's what's happening with these studies of sharks on coral reefs, that sharks are causing, you know, that sharks are a top level predator. Their removal does cause a trophic cascade. And these studies showing that they don't eat that much have nothing to do with it. Interesting. Yeah. So an example of this that's already been sussed out on the African savanna is researchers found that antelopes fear of lions causes them to spend more time watching for lions and less time eating. 
which leaves oh. enough grass for the other animals, resulting in less available energy for reproduction, leading to population control. This makes a lot more sense in terms of like all the like birds and stuff that can exploit predator calls too. Like, have you ever heard of uh, the fork-tailed drongo? Nope. <laughs> so it um it lives near. I don't know why I even brought this up if I can't remember the mammal. It lives near either prairie dogs or meerkats. I think it's prairie dogs, but they will actually wait for a chance when like a prairie dog, I think, is eating like a food stuff um, above the ground or something. And it'll make a, it'll bluff a predator call. And then when they all run underground, it'll go and steal the food. Incredible. Yes. Yes. So that would be, that's another cool piece of evidence that fits into this because it shows that like the ecology of fear is widespread enough that it also results in adaptations to it. Hell yeah, man. Yes. All right. So the researchers were really interesting, interested in studying this and seeing if the fear of these predators and these ecosystems could be shaping um, the ecosystem. So here we go. The science of it. They set up remote video recorders um, in would the arena. Uh, sorry. W- would these be bruvs? Um, Baited underwater remote something? No. Okay. No, because they're not baited. Oh, okay. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, they're hidden. Um, they're just there to spy. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they set them up in these lagoons and in the back reef um, with the purpose of um, counting, um, you know, who's there and when they come and go uh, in reference to the tide. Interesting. Yes. So they wanted to see if the distribution of the seaweeds, which are the primary producers, might be the result of the impact of herbivores' fear of predators. So they're really looking at like the very top to the very bottom. Yes, the whole, all the trophic levels. So researchers set up remote video recorders in this area, and they wanted to find out if the distribution of the primary producers, the seaweeds, uh, might be the result of the impact of herbivores' fear of predators. So Hmm. they set up these cameras. They're really, you know, hidden. um, And they wanted to count while looking at the footage, you know, who came and went um, and also how it was related to the tide. Because remember in this intertidal reef system, um, predators only have access to the reefs during high tide. They don't have access during the reefs during low tide. And so that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why this ecosystem is perfect for this kind of study because it provides sort of a natural control Interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. So looking at the footage, they observed black tip reef sharks, white tip reef sharks, and tawny nurse sharks all making daily visits to the back reef, but only during high tide when the water was high enough for them to get in and out without being stranded. So they didn't try at all during like the low tide times? Nope. Interesting. Okay. So that means that the risk of predation for the prey of these sharks would be highest during high tide and lowest during low tide. So those things align. Yeah. Yeah, that tracks. So those three shark species all prey on herbivorous fish species. So for the white tip shark, uh, herbivorous fish species makes up 91% of their diet. For the black tip, 52%. And for the nurse sharks, 33%. So these are all prolific herbivorous fish eaters. Wow. Now, that is important because herbivorous fishes shape the seaweed community structure on most tropical Pacific reefs um, by eating it. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like the, uh, the, the, the parrot fish eat, eating the coral type thing? Exactly. They're one of them. Um, okay. Right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So seaweed is the primary producer here. I'm using seaweed to also mean like algae and stuff. 
fair enough. Yes. All right. So isn't seaweed just like macroalgae anyway? That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> so you're right. Yeah. Um, so therefore, a trophic cascade could occur in this ecosystem because the sharks impact those herbivorous fishes, and the herbivorous fishes would impact the seaweed. Gotcha. So that was the first part of the study was the observational part. Now we get into the testing. So the okay. researchers what? I said, okay. Okay. So the researchers deployed two common brown seaweeds for two hours surrounding the peak high tide and the peak low tide, um, not just on one day, over a long period. <laughs> Very good. More and they assessed, size. yes. <laughs> and then from that, they assessed the rate at which those seaweeds were consumed by herbivorous fishes at the high and low tide. Did it matter what kind of herbivore did it, or was it just like blanket herbivorous? You, 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 you got me with the thing. Herbivorous. What's happening? <laughs> I'm not editing mine. Just keep going. Are we having a group stroke? Um, <laughs> all right. So um, they did look into like what kinds of herbivores they were they were seeing, um, but I'm not going to go into that because it's just a list of like so many different species. <laughs> that is fair. Although I will say parrotfish were there, and so were unicorn fish. Uh, I love unicorn fish. Yeah, me too. Um, all right. So they found that the browsing herbivores rapidly consumed the seaweeds in the lagoons during the low tide, but almost not at all during the high tide. Should we define browser for the listener? Yeah, you should. Oh, I should. Okay. Um, uh, do I know what a browser is? The browser is the one that just like takes the thing and then walks in another direction and then takes another thing. They're like a dainty little pick and chooser. Then what's right? a grazer? A what? Grazer. Oh, crap. Um, the grazer stays in one spot for a lot, I think, yeah, right? That's okay. right. Very good. Total test. You. Um, <laughs> all right. So, yes. So during the low tide, um, they were eating all that seaweed. During the high tide, they were not. Um, now, these fishes are small enough that they can access those areas regardless of the levels of the tide. But remember, high tide is correlated with predators being there. Low tide is correlated with no predators. So they're only browsing when there's no predators. Okay. Interesting. So That's basically right. this exactly supports what they were trying to find. And it goes on. It goes on. They also examined the foraging rates of grazing herbivores. Um, and those ones are important because they prevent the seaweed from um, like growing over the coral. So that's important. Um, and so, um, they found a similar pattern, uh, for the grazing herbivores. Grazing rates were significantly lower at high tide, um, and they were grazing a lot at low tide when the sharks could not get in. However, throughout this observation process, uh, no shark predation was observed. So no matter what time, the sharks were not able to actually get at the grazers or the browsers. Yes, exactly. And that, you know, that checks out because... They grazers and the browsers were mostly only out when the sharks were not there. Um, and so this, yeah, it all, it all is lining up so far. It almost seems like the sharks didn't want to bother based on like how few of their prey would actually be there. They just didn't think it was worth it. Well, they came in, so they did think it was worth it. True, true. But, you know, it aligns with what we're finding out about sharks, that they can survive for a very long time between meals and that they're very opportunistic predators. They're mostly preying on diseased and dying animals. So, you know, if an animal got real silly and was like, I'm, I don't even care anymore. I'm going to go eat it at high tide. That would be the, that would be the one that gets eaten. Gotcha. 
I like your example. Thank you. <laughs> I completely forgot about optimal foraging theory. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. So that cycle of risk is generated almost entirely by the sharks, not by the tide. Um, and those three shark species accounted for 85% of the predator sightings in the area. They also saw a couple jacks. Um, not your cat, the fish. Yes, the fish. <laughs> Jack the fish. <laughs> Jack um, <laughs> Yeah. So further investigation um, was an actual topography survey um, and a survey of the distribution of seaweeds across the topography of the reef tops and the lagoons. And based on that, I'll post some pictures on the Instagram, mm -hmm. um, that survey suggested that these shark fear effects cascade to actually shape the seaweed distribution in the entire ecosystem and do so through a few strongly interacting species in the food web, including the unicorn fish. Wow. So all it takes is just the outsized presence of the sharks themselves to shape the entirety of the reef. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, I mean, it's not all the sharks. It also has to You be... know what I mean. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but they're a good factor. Yeah. Um, and so they also, you know, they did their due diligence. Um, this is not pathological science. They also explored if the environmental factors, like the abiotic factors, the light, the topography, could be the main thing contributing to this. Um, so they deployed algae um, that's really common on the rooftop um, onto areas that were seaweed free in the lagoons and on the rooftops. And then they assessed its growth when it was in a cage so that herbivores could not get to it. And then also when it was not in a cage over a period of 96 hours um, to see if, you know, herbivores were actually affecting the growth rates of the seaweed. And the rate that the herbivores removed the seaweed was more than 20 times greater in the lagoons than on the reef tops. So once Holy. again, that checks out. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, seriously. Yeah. Um, and then the uncaged seaweeds on the reef top uh, received negligible browsing or loss of mass owing to physical disturbance. Um, so together, those findings indicate that the variation in herbivory rather than the abiotic differences are the most prominent thing shaping the seaweed distribution in the habitat. So they really checked all their boxes. They That's really like every other possibility accounted for. Yes. Um, so, you know, to sum it up, they, you know, found this hole in the research, this gap between um, sharks don't eat enough to cause trophic changes. And um, without sharks in an ecosystem, trophic changes occur. And they found something to fill that gap, tested all of the other options and found that in this ecosystem, the fear of sharks absolutely is shaping um, the food web and sharks are extremely important to the functioning of this ecosystem. Hell yeah. And not yeah. only that, based on like the, the uh, white shark killer whale thing, it's, it's happening in a lot of other places very likely too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the researchers, Rasher, um, said uh, in an article about his article, <laughs> which I found on fizz.org, the threat of predation is a powerful force in nature. Every animal on the planet would rather miss lunch than be lunch, so their actions often reflect that sentiment. The ecological importance of sharks remains a contentious topic, but here we've shown that they can cause trophic cascades under select conditions. We need to refocus the conversation away from whether trophic cascades generally exist in these ecosystems and toward identifying the specific times and places that sharks shape the environment around them. Yeah, which would lead to a much better plan for the conservation of those sharks. Exactly. And so these fear interactions, which he's calling cascades of fear, which I just think is super metal. 
Um, Cascades of Fear are rarely Title considered. Title of this episode. <laughs> Cascades of Fear. Yes, I like it. Anyway, they're rarely considered in resource management. Um, but this and other reef studies, um, which were also cited here, provide a reason to do more consideration. Large predator movements in this study um, appear to shift the timing to which herbivores visit and feed on the back reef, such that some herbivores, this is an interesting finding, of high food value to humans are concentrated in lagoons at low tide. And that allows efficient human predators to easily harvest those herbivores at low tide since they have the limited ability to escape. Interesting. In this reserve that is controlled because it's managed based on science and based on this ecosystem, what they call ecosystem-based management. But in other areas of the world, uh, human predators have dramatically reduced the abundance of all large herbivores in these types of back reefs. And that has triggered phase shifts to seaweed dominant within fishing areas. And the knowledge of predator movements and the resulting herbivore migrations um, should be considered by resource managers so that they can mitigate the negative human impact in these areas um, by regulating uh, when herbivores are harvested. Basically, they would be saying you can only harvest these fish at, um, at high tide. So when that same pressure is applied so that they're not being harvested in their safe place. You know what I mean? Yeah. When they'd have a better, much better chance of like escaping or just like, you know, less of effect, less of an effect on the ecosystem. Exactly. It would have, it would help human predators have a lesser effect on the ecosystem. Um, So that's, that's an example of ecosystem-based management that's happening in Fiji. Um, A partnership between researchers and indigenous peoples making that possible. Really, really cool. Really, really Love cool. it. Yeah. This was a really cool paper. Yeah, I liked it a lot. I liked it quite a lot. Um, now, if we had more time, I would go on to talk about an additional part of the um, Ecology of Fear uh, study, which is um, the fear of the human super predator. Oh. Yeah. Um, but I'm thinking, since our listeners probably don't want to like listen to us talk for like two hours, Maybe our next episode, I'll talk a little bit more about the ecology of fear in relation to humans, and maybe I can do a little bit of a deeper dive on those interactions between uh, orcas and sharks. Yeah, I like it. All right. Uh, For now, I will uh, sate the listeners' appetites by saying that in a lot of places where humans have a lot of interactions with rattlesnakes, uh, rattlesnakes are actually uh, becoming less loud and having less of a rattle to actually do because it makes them uh, less likely to be spotted and killed by a human. That actually feeds right into the fear of the human super predator and how we as a top predator are shaping ecosystems all around us all the time. So more yeah. on that in the next episode of Science in Podcast. Tune in next time. This magazine. <laughs> I can't believe we didn't go on a tangent at the end. I um, know. It's just like a, I was about to say this is a pretty tangent free episode, but then I remember. It was not. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, do a tangent free episode but i hope y'all enjoyed it yeah uh let's quit while we while we're, we're ahead uh thank you for listening and uh bye bye bye